Hello, I'm Katie Jarvis, and this week, Real Foot Forward is made possible by our friends at Blue Bank Resort on Real Foot Lake. If you're looking for the best place on the lake for fishing, eagle watching, or enjoying some of the best catfish in the region, you'll find it at Real Foot Lake. Visit bluebankresort.com and reserve your cabin today. Welcome to Real Foot Forward from Discovery Park of America, located up here in the corner of beautiful West Tennessee. Every day at our museum and heritage park, we inspire children and adults to see beyond. And each week, we do the same thing here on our podcast. In today's episode, Scott sits down with Marty Doss, who gives us insight on the beginnings of Discovery Park of America. Hello, I'm Scott Williams, host of Real Foot Forward, where every single week we get excited about the South, or at least our little section of it. Just like at our museum and heritage park here in Union City, Tennessee, on this podcast, we explore the culture, spirit, accomplishments, and heritage of our home here in West Tennessee. One of my favorite people is our guest today, and she's going to tell us all about the heritage and the history um, of both her and Discovery Park of America and a little bit about Obion County. Her work with the Obion County Museum led her to involvement with Robert Kirkland and a role in the development of this $100 million project that led to Discovery Park of America, and she's going to tell us all about it. Welcome, Marty. Good, good morning. It's great to have you here. So um, for anybody who's visited Discovery Park of America in the last you know, few years, then you might have met Marty. She paints and draws with children who come here from all over the world. And we're going to talk to her a little bit more about that in a minute. But tell me a little bit about you, you were born here in Obion County. Tell me about your childhood here. I was born in Union City because my great-grandmother delivered me and I was raised in Reeves, where my father was a farmer, and he was also a school principal. He was a troubleshooting man, and they moved him from school to school wherever there was a problem. So I have generations of school teaching. That's probably why I wanted to become a school teacher. I taught uh, privately in Memphis. I went to Memphis to get my education and enjoyed Memphis State a great deal. But while I was at home, I loved the outdoors, and I loved the tractor work, the field work, and I was out most of the time. So I I enjoyed nature. I enjoyed the farming, all of this, and enjoyed high school. I enjoyed school always. And where did you go to high school? Reeves. How many people were in your high school class? There were 22 people in my high school graduating (laughs) class. (laughs) So it was a tight-knit bunch. It was. It really was. So your parents encouraged you to uh, go to Memphis to pursue your education? Not really. Um, My daddy went to Memphis State when it was Normal State Teachers College, and he had to catch a train in Memphis to get out there. When I was uh, four years old, I wanted to go to school with my dad, 
and would cry if he left me, so he took me most of the time. And there was a little lady named Jeanette Pruitt who taught the first and second grades. She would uh, say, um, Miss Martha, what did your grandmother read to you last night? And I would tell her, these boys and girls haven't heard that. Would you tell it to them? And she would stand me on a table, and I'd tell it to one grade. And then she'd do that to me for the second grade. So I was always a teacher and a storyteller, I guess. Wow. But this made me start school at four years old, made me go to college at 16, and I I always enjoyed it. I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a teacher. Two years into Memphis State, the president of the college, who was a friend of my dad's, called me into his office and said, how would you like to be Memphis State's first art student? And I said, I think I'd like that. He said, you recruit the uh, students, I'll recruit the teacher. The next semester, he had to go get another teacher. There were so many students signed up, we had to have two teachers. And everything they put in, I took All the art I could get, I soaked up. But I didn't even know there was an art class until I got to college. There was nothing in my area. Did you draw draw or paint or anything at all when you were a little girl? I don't remember ever not having a paintbrush. I had one when I was big enough to hold one. I painted little figurines at first, and then... uh, I got sick when I was in the 10th grade, and uh, I told my mother I wanted to paint, and somehow I lay in bed and painted and uh, enjoyed it. When I got back to high school, the teacher said, if you'll illustrate these stories, I'll give you your grade. I did. Made good grades. <laughs> oh, that's great. So w- why were your parents sort of hesitant to see you go off to Memphis? Was it because of your your age and, and the fact that you were a young lady? Because I was only 16. I grew up on the farm, and I was very, very strong. I looked like a toothpick, but I was very strong. I could stack a 75-pound bale of hay higher than my head and uh, could look after myself very well, and I knew it. When Dad was hesitant about my going to uh, college at 16, I thought he wanted to keep me there on the farm. It was two years later that that he sat me down and said, Well, your college money has come in. Oh, And I thought, why in this world did you not tell me this earlier? I had harbored some ill feelings, you know. Mm -hmm. But uh, by this time, I was earning my way through college. You could do it in those days. You can't today. About about what year? What years was this? I went there in 52. Okay, 1952. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it was a whole different... Memphis was a whole different place. Did you live in, in a dorm? I lived one year in a dorm, and I thought the girls were foolish. (laughs) Too many of them went there to rope in a man, you know, and I thought that was awful. (laughs) So I got an apartment across the street, across Southern Avenue, and uh, 
after a while, I was doing so much freelance artwork that uh, I got a, another building down the street a little way and turned it into a commercial studio. I lived in the back of it and did artwork in the front of it and earned my way through college. That's amazing. Well, what, what, um, what brought you back to home? When I graduated college, I married Joe. We uh, had three children, and then Memphis got pretty rough on schools and children, and he said, let's move you back. I married a man 20 years older than me, and he wanted me back where my folks were. So we moved back here, and in the meantime, I had worked in graphic arts and had earned a good bit at uh, the uh, printing company that published the the news. Well, it was the East Memphis Shoppers News. Oh, I remember that. But I became uh, a director in that. Then... Uh, when we had these three children, we wanted to move back here, so I got a job with The Messenger, and Joe got a job in uh, electronics and eventually worked at the hospital. It was really funny because ladies would uh, meet us on the street somewhere, and they'd say, uh, you live with him? You live with him? Does he tease you like he does us? <laughs> and you tell me you made those pies he brought in. He said he made them. I said, ma'am, he made those. <laughs> He's a wonderful cook. He really was. He could cook anything. Could he? Yes. That's great. E eventually, um, we had foster children. My kids, as teenagers, kept bringing kids home with them. And the judge, and we went to church together, and one day he said, Marty, why don't you do this legally? And I said, do what? He said, take kids in, be a foster home. I said, what's that? <laughs> and he told me, and he set us up. DHS came over to interview us, and they didn't know what to do with us. And I said, I think I can help you. And I got out my scrapbooks and put them in front of them. And they said, yes. And one week later, we had a girl. We had 80 teenage foster children wow. all together. Man, what a blessing you guys were. That's, that's amazing. What and a, I'm sure it was a blessing for you as it well. It was very much a blessing for us and for my, for my children because... You know, homes are just not raised the same. It's so different, and it was interesting for them to see the difference in things. So Joe got a lot of experience cooking through the through the years with all those mouths to feed. He took over all the cooking, and I was still teaching school. Yeah, and so teaching school is a, is a passion for you. Uh, it led you to getting involved in the Obion County Historical Society right. at some point. And so tell me, what, what uh, inspired you to get involved with that organization? I was working at The Messenger. David Critchlow was my boss. And uh, Mr. McNatt asked David to set up a museum because he had a thousand artifacts and had nowhere to put them. His family was not interested. 
and he wanted them put where people could enjoy them. So David set up the Obine County Museum in the fairgrounds, which meant it was only open during the fair. And we uh, took care of it, and we flooded. The building, the water would come through the building, and we would flood, and we'd have to go in and wipe off the artifacts and take care of them, you know. So when David got tired of being the chair of this, uh, he pulled in a man who worked for him, David Bartholomew, really. And we bought an old church building, which had been used as a nursery. We were tickled to death with it. I got in there and found out all these toilets we thought we had were just so high off the ground, you know, <laughs> they were for infants. <laughs> so we had to redo everything. Mm. But the building sufficed us very well, especially the high ceiling in it. And when Robert Kirkland gave us the mammoth, which was the first thing he did for us, the building was tall enough to accommodate it. It worked really well. And then he gave us the uh, one of the dinosaurs, and I, I don't know the name of it, can't remember. But we had those in there before we became this. So Robert Kirkland was a part of the Historic Society, or he just was a supporter? Because obviously he loved O'Brien County and Union City, and was he in, in the society or on the board or just a supporter? No, he was a great businessman. He traveled the world. He set up the Kirkland Enterprises. He, uh, can I tell you a funny story? I'd love a funny story. I knew his parents. They were wonderful people. And they owned the Ben Franklin store. And they decided Robert needed some business interest, so they put him in the Ben Franklin store to run it. And he didn't do very well. And they were they were in despair. They didn't know what to do with him. And I always thought that was so funny <laughs> because he just didn't want to be tied down. He mm -hmm. wanted to travel. And he kept building these uh, enterprises of his. And when he came to us... He had sold everything and became quite a millionaire. He had to do something with the money, and he wanted to build something phenomenal. He wanted to do it here in his community. My favorite story of Robert Kirkland is after he built this, his friends kept saying, Robert, why on earth did you build this fantastic thing in the middle of a cornfield? And his reply was always, what have you done for your community? There you go. That, that speaks volumes yes. about community involvement and supporting you know, everyone in your hometown. Yes. So do you remember when he first came to you when did you first hear that he had the idea for building a museum? He came to the Obine County uh, Museum uh, board meeting. He came in and said, uh, I am thinking of building a big building. And he, he kind of laid out what he had in mind, but it really wasn't this. We had two 
old negative people in this. Oh, he'll never do this. He'll never do this. There's always negative people oh, in, my. in every group. And I was sitting there thinking, why aren't you thinking positive? Why aren't you at least trying Amen. to get hold of this? He said, please do not tell anybody. Do not tell anybody. When I get ready to go public, I want to go public. Polly had, uh, my daughter Polly had actually uh, drawn out a museum and the walking grounds and everything. She said, this is my dream for us to have this. Well, of course, Kirkland had the money, and she just had the dream. <laughs> but she said uh, something about it, and I said, you're going to the next board meeting. And she said, why? I said, I can't tell you, but you're going. <laughs> so she went to the next board meeting, and, of course, I had all of what he had said in the minutes, and she heard about it. And she was, of course, extremely interested. So Robert came back to another meeting and had uh, thought a little further about it. And I told him, I said, Polly has actually uh, drawn out some plans. He said, I want to see them. She said, I don't have them anymore. And I said, I do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> so I ran to the uh, closet there and pulled them out and showed them to him. And he was impressed. He decided to uh, have brainstorming meetings. Polly was one of four that he pulled together. And every month they met in the library in a secret meeting and brainstormed uh, a new museum. He still didn't want to call it a museum, but we did at that time. He had these people together brainstorming, and of course I wasn't in the meeting, so I don't know all of it. But when he decided to go public, that he would really try and do this, he called a meeting through the newspaper and the media, asked people who were interested in working on it to come. 250 people showed up. We were all blown away. Wow. I had made little signs and put them on the table, art, automobiles, Indian, you know. And when he got through talking, he told people to get up and go to the table they were most interested in and start brainstorming for their department. We did. I was so excited, I was running around to two or three of them. <laughs> <laughs> I bet there were some people that did want to work on multiple tables. Was there any topic that nobody wanted to work on, or did every topic that you picked? Every topic was covered. Wow. We had such a diversified group, and it was very interesting that we already had so many artifacts in the museum, and Robert was blown away because we had never paid an employee. We were all volunteer board members, and we would keep it open on the weekend or for special events. And he thought we ought to have paid employees and start growing. That's when he put the mammoth and the dinosaur in. Oh, okay. Well, 250 people expressed their interest, and he would go to these group meetings, and he'd say, dream big, dream big. I got on the Enlightenment Committee, and I said, I want 
uh, a suit of armor that kids can touch. I, I don't want it behind glass. I, I want one that the kids can touch. And this is an example of how he worked. So I found one for $3,000, and I thought, boy, you know, this is all right, but there's still a lot of money. And I told him about it, and he said, I don't want that one. And I thought, oh, mercy, am I supposed to go cheaper? He had one built for $30,000. Wow, it's the one that's on display yes, here? Yes, that's the one you see today. In the Enlightenment Gallery. That's uh, yes. amazing. But that's the way he thought. He wanted the best in here. And that's how this whole place is. That's e right. Everywhere you go at Discovery Park, it's all the best. Yes. So the uh, how, how long did the committees meet? How long did it take before enough took shape that he could then start having it built? That secret group met for one year. Wow. One year. Then he went public, and all these people came in. He hired an architect. They set up three stages of growth, and we wound up doing two of them instead of one together. The third stage has yet to be done. That's the education department that, uh, of course, I'm dreaming of, and Polly. But... Uh, Hugh Wade was on our board in the old museum. He started gathering all of these artifacts for the Civil War, for the other wars, too. I remember we got a lot of things for the Vietnam War, and people were still down on the Vietnam War. But we put it in, built a nice display anyway. And thank goodness it came over here to this museum. But we had all of the wars listed. And I need to tell you another funny. The man from New York who was in charge of building displays was running around with Robert most of the time. And I said, I need some time with you. I need to show you what we have. He said, okay. So one day I cornered him and I said, you can't wait any longer. You've got to come with me. I've got to show you something. So first I went in the old museum where things were on display. Then I took him upstairs where we had a room full of thousands of photographs. Took him to a room where we had all of these old uh, uniforms and costumes period-wise took him to another room where we had started building toys and another room where we had the military, another room where we had old furniture and some uh, things that children were interested in, too. And he said, oh, this is great. Thank you for showing it to me. I said, you're not through. You're, <laughs> you're not through. So I took him to another building and unlocked it, and he just about fell out. We had so many things in there. I think one of the things that impressed him was Fats Everett's chair and desk. They were huge. We had old cabinets that somebody had thought to save out of an old drugstore. They're 
beautifully on display today. We had uh, an old still. Matter of fact, we had two of them. We had everything. Wow. And it was still full of old tools and things that we didn't have room to display. And he said, well, thank you for showing it to me. I said, you're not through. <laughs> I took him to the log cabin, unlocked it, and showed him where we had a period room. It had the fireplace and the things that swung in to hold the cooking pots and all of this. We had the, the old wooden bread bowls, wooden spoons. We had a bed, and that bed was built of rope, and it had a trundle bed that was built of rope. Wow. We also had the loom in there at the time. We didn't have any other place to put it. But the man was so overcome by the diversity that we had already collected. Oh, and we had a lot of stuffed animals yeah. that had been given to us. And we didn't buy anything. It was all donated. So clearly there was a lot of uh, pride and a lot went into saving all these items. What was it like for you the first time you got to actually walk through and see Discovery Park in place ready for the public? I was overcome. It was wonderful. It's absolutely terrific. And you were obviously here on the opening day when they did the ribbon-cutting ceremony. Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. And, and you didn't go away. You still, you still have a passion for Discovery Park. You're here um, almost every day that I'm aware of. You're out there painting with the kids and drawing with the kids. Tell me a little bit about why you do that, and what do you, what do you get from that? Being an old school teacher, I always loved the kids. When I have a chance to paint with them and their eyes light up, and we have Discovery Park printed on the cards, uh, and it's in black and white so it won't interfere with the colors we use. They get to take this home, and it's a souvenir of the park, and, of course, I think it's the best one because they did it. And their parents are always, oh, we're going to frame that. We're, we're going to frame that. We're going to keep that. And I love it. But it keeps me in tune with the kids. It gives them something to take home. And uh, I, I just really like it. Every, every time I'm passing by there, you've got kids surrounding the table and you're helping them paint pictures. Why do you think art is important for children? I've always believed in art. I always knew that schools that had art in them scored higher, and I always thought that was because you actually perceived what you saw. And art students learn to do that, and it helps them in things besides art. I have uh, a student who is a famous architect today, Daryl Russell, and he started drawing houses in my room Wow. And he began to draw them so big and so well that I got him some college books mm -hmm. and put him in those. I said, Daryl, you're passing me. <laughs> and he became uh, an architect, had a job in Memphis when he graduated college, and then they set him up with an office in Florida. That's amazing. And so you get to know that, that your work um, is continuing on. I know that our mission here is to inspire children and adults to see beyond. And I know that the children that are here painting um, get to experience a lot of that because of you. 
you were there at Ground Zero at the very beginning when, when the idea for Discovery Park was forming. What do you hope for the future? How do you hope it changes, grows, evolves? What do you see going forward? Well, I liked Robert's idea of see beyond. Keep stretching, keep reaching, keep learning. And I think we do that here. The classes we have are terrific. The uh, docents are informed on what they work with, and they're able to talk about them and answer questions for people. I like that. It does make people stretch and see. People come back. We have an enormous crowd from Memphis that is a return. They come every year. I don't know if you knew that, but we do. We have a crowd from Paducah who comes a lot. And then, of course, we have people from everywhere. Somebody told me that they worked in a, a country the exact opposite of this on the other side of the world one time. People in Union City frequently come. I know a lot of grandmothers who bring their kids here every time they keep them. Yeah, I know of one lady that I see, I think, just about every day. Yes. She brings her two grandsons in here. Yes. And I see them in one section or another. Well, there's a lot of our locals who do that. And yet we have a few locals who tell me they haven't been here yet. We'll get them here. We'll get them here. Good. Well, I know you've got kids waiting for you out there to paint. Um, it, all of our listeners who are planning a trip to Discovery Park of America with your kids, make sure you stop by and have Miss Marty paint with your children. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you for letting me. And now to a guy who has turned discovery into an art form. Here's Andrew Gibson to take us behind the scenes here at Discovery Park of America. All right. Thank you, Scott. I am Andrew Gibson with the Education Department here at Discovery Park of America. And today I am with David Heathcott, a docent here who will be sharing with us more about the interesting story of Tesla and Edison. Isn't that correct? Yeah. All right. So take it away, David. I'm, I'm eager to learn. Well, what I, uh, what I like to talk about is uh, to kind of make people think about the what comes out of their the sockets in their walls, and uh, you know, and people take for granted, you know, if you plug in a a electrical cord, you're going to get electricity out of it. Well, that wasn't always the case. The uh, there was a battle for what was going to come out of those wall sockets, and uh, it was it took place between uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, Thomas Edison, George Westinghouse, and Nikola Tesla. There was two battling uh, battling uh, currents. One was called direct current. One was called alternating current. Uh, in the eighteen uh, late eighteen hundreds. Invention was ripe. There was just a new invention, invention seemingly every day, and uh, and these four people uh, uh, realized that uh, uh, you can make money with electricity, something you couldn't see, but it it uh, it it made things go. And so uh, they they each had competing ideas. Uh, Edison's was direct current, and uh, it did work, except uh, uh, the drawbacks was that. Uh, uh, direct current didn't go very far in, in a wire, and you needed a generating plant every few miles in order to keep the, the current going. And the last person on the line before the uh, before it ran out just uh, might just barely have a glow of a light bulb, while the people at the front, you know, got a very bright uh, a light. But uh, uh, alternating current uh, could go hundreds of miles. And this was the invention of Nikola Tesla. 
and uh, it uh, required very uh, uh, very light uh, wires, and uh, it operated very high voltage but low current, whereas the direct current operated at, at low voltage and high current. And uh, so uh, being as this was what I call the Gilded Age, uh, which was uh, considered to be uh, on the surface very uh, very high society and very sophisticated, really it was uh, it was kind of rough and tumble below the surface. And uh, uh, Morgan and Edison uh, decided that they were going to uh, do something to discredit uh, te uh, Tesla and Westinghouse, and what they were going to do was they were going to execute a man with uh, with a, uh, a Tesla alternating current generator. And uh, unfortunately, the poor man that uh, uh, was going to be the uh, the test case was named William Kembler. He'd been convicted of murdering his wife in the, st in the state of New York. And so uh, uh, Edison and, and Morgan worked out with the state of, of New York that uh, they would uh, execute this man as a demonstration of the danger of alternating current. And uh, so they... Uh, they brought this man in and uh, attached him to the chair, and then they connected this uh, surreptitiously obtained uh, Westinghouse alternating current generator and zapped him with 1,700 volts for uh, several seconds. And so he appeared to be dead, so they started to unstrap him, and then this poor man starts to groan. And so now they have to connect him back up, and this time they give him about five minutes of, uh, of electricity. And by this time, the man is, is well and truly dead, but unfortunately, he's, he's smoking and he's not smoking cigarettes, but uh, even in, by the standards of the day, this was this was truly gruesome. And uh, rather than discredit Tesla and and Westinghouse, it actually uh, it actually served to uh, to drive Thomas Edison out of the uh, out of the electricity business. But before he left, he uh, he he created the uh, what would be uh, uh, General Electric. And Westinghouse had uh, was an inventor of his own right. He he invented the air brakes for trains. And uh, and his name wound up on on everything TVs, air conditioners, refrigerators, you name it. Uh, he worked on it, jet engines during World War II, and uh, uh, so he uh, he died a household name. And Nikola Tesla essentially died during World War II as pretty much an unknown. And uh, I think history has rediscovered uh, uh, Nikola Tesla, and uh, he's he's been given the uh, credit that he's due. And there's there's a, a rock band by the name of Tesla, and there's also a, a car by the name of Tesla. So. I think maybe he's uh, maybe he's gotten uh, he's gotten his reward uh, posthumously. So I guess uh, my first question: Edison kind of gets the credit for a lot of things due uh, with electricity, um, quote unquote, discovering the light bulb or inventing the light bulb. Um, but from from my understanding, that wasn't the case. Do you know any? Do you can you touch on that for a minute? Well, um, uh, he, he took credit for a lot of things that were. Uh, that were invented by people that worked for him, and he would he would take the put his name on the patents. Uh, he had several people that worked for him that actually, excuse me, were actually uh, involved. Uh, I can't think of their uh, of a specific name off the top of my head, but uh, uh, there were other people that were that were very important in in creating an actual working working durable light bulb. So, and then my my, my last question here. How does renewable energy resources tie in with alternating currents or AC or um, direct currents with DC? With something, uh, if you if you look at um, hydroelectricity with like uh, the Niagara Falls, do you know anything about that? Well, um, you know, hydroelectric power is uh, is uh, uh, is pretty clean. There's no uh, there's no uh, stack exhaust or anything. Uh, all you need is a 
is a body of water elevated enough to give a, a head of pressure to spin a turbine and then a generator. And uh, um, other, other renewable sources, I, I, I would have to, to talk about each one on its own, but uh, some are just not, are just not uh, viable at this time. Hydro is is excellent. It doesn't pollute, but uh, you know, and, it, and it's it's dependable. Uh, David, is there anywhere here at Discovery Park where you can learn more about energy, just in general? Well, uh, and our upper uh, our upper level, <clears throat> excuse me, has a uh, an energy uh, an energy uh, uh, exhibit, and you can uh, you can actually make uh, uh, create uh, energy in different ways. Uh, uh, usually, uh, some uh, muscle power, and you can see see how how uh, Say muscle power is converted into into kinetic energy, which which or into rotational energy, which turns a a generator. And we also uh, we also explain how to fuel how a fuel cell works, which I thought was really interesting because I really had no idea. And I've I've, I've looked at the at the uh, diagram and I understand how it works now. It's really quite interesting. It's very inventive. Well, all right. Well, thank you, David, once again for sharing your knowledge with us today. Um, you can find us here at Discovery Park of America. We hope to see you here real soon. Thank you for listening to Real Foot Forward. If you enjoyed this podcast, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you may be listening. Plan your own adventure to see beyond at Discovery Park of America by visiting discoveryparkofamerica.com. And be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for the latest updates. 